In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men... How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich man, because she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One hot August afternoon in 2017, Louis Garcia was helping his friend John Cape build a wheelchair ramp for John's girlfriend, Rexina, at their house in San Antonio. Suddenly, Bear County police showed up with a search warrant. They took Louis and John inside, cuffed them, and quickly found a stash of drugs that were hidden in the house. Body cam footage later showed more drugs on the floor near Louis's feet. John, Rexina, and Louis were all arrested and charged with drug possession and trafficking. Louis insisted he knew nothing about it. Those drugs on the floor didn't belong to him. This wasn't even his house. But his lawyer said it didn't look good. If they went to trial and the jury saw that footage, Louis could be facing 25 years to life. Reluctantly, he pled guilty and got a lighter sentence. I mean, after all, the drugs were right there on camera. But this is wrongful conviction. All right, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. We are guest hosting today. My name is Greg Glaude. And I'm Clayton English. You might recognize our voices from the War on Drugs podcast that Clayton and I co-host. And, you know, we're really excited to share the story that we have for you today on Wrongful Conviction. Because yes. I really think it aligns with a lot of things that we're talking about there. You know, perverse incentives within the criminal justice system, within the drug war that lead to devastating consequences. And in the case that we have today, an actual wrongful conviction. Uh, there really isn't a greater example than Louis Garcia, who was the subject and victim of wrongful conviction in the San Antonio area of Texas. Uh, so we have Louis here, and we also have his attorney, Dana Jones. Guys, thank you so much for being on the Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us. Yeah. yeah. And let's just kind of get into it a little bit. Um, Louis, let's talk about uh, prior to the incident here back in, in 2017. You know, where were you born? Where, where'd you grow up? I was born in San Antonio. I went to school. I played ball. I lifted a lot of weights. And, uh, you know, it was just enjoying myself, dating off and on. Any minor run-ins with the law, things like that? I've had run-ins with the law before, and, and it's, uh, 
it's just you know like when you're in your early 20s and you start drinking alcohol so yeah, i've had some run-ins with the with, with the authorities and yeah you know i've yeah i can say i've learned some of my lessons typical stuff for being a young for being a young adult like you said you start drinking you get you know, you're irresponsible at that age. You get pulled over for taillights, tags, and then something else goes on. But it's not like this was your life or you were in and out of the system before. No, I was a licensed electrician. Right. I had a real good a real good job. I was running jobs. I was I was doing everything, you know. I was going down a good path. Like, so when all of this went down, August of 2017, you were like, what, 45 years old? Yeah. You were living in San Antonio, working, you know, doing your thing, electrician work, and you were friends with a couple of your neighbors, John Cape and Rexina Linan Juarez, who lived across the street. Yeah. My neighbors are great. Sometimes I barbecue, sometimes they do, and, and we'll send plates back and forth. I'm the kind of guy that you invite to the barbecue and bring your tools. Right. So I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm always out, you know, having a good time. Gotcha. And Rexina, who also went by Mona, uh, you helped her out a lot. You know, she had lost her legs to, to diabetes. Uh, she was in a wheelchair. And in fact, this one day you had actually seen her fall off her ramp to get into her house because the ramp was in, you know, pretty rough shape, right? Yeah. Then I go across the street and start helping her up. And I started looking at this little, this, you know, whatever you want to call it that was built. It was just a bunch of scrap wood put together. And I looked around and I told her, you know, Mona, I'll, I'll help you build all this up and clean your fence up. And, and you were like, hey, let me get this together so this won't happen again. Uh, and Yeah. yeah. And so I had extra plywood, like two by fours, and a lot of stuff out there that, that, that we could have – we were going to build her a better ramp. And uh, she um, she was excited about it, but she kept on telling me, I can't pay you. I can't pay you. And I, I told her, you know, well, on the first of the month when you get your food stamps, so, you know, I'm a real sucker for some chicken mole. And right. She goes, oh, I can make that. I can make that. I said, we'll be good. Hey, man, listen, a home-cooked meal, sometimes that's more than enough for a hard day's work. <laughs> so that's what you and Mona's boyfriend, John Cape, were up to that day. August 10th, 2017, you were out in front of their house. You're building a new wheelchair ramp. And Mona had gone off to the dollar store to, you know, grab some snacks and some Gatorade for you guys, right? Yeah. And uh, while we were, um, you know, putting everything together, I don't know who the guy was, but uh, this, uh, you know, John was communicating with him and he told him that, hey, do you mind if my daughter uses the restroom? She had a pink backpack with her. And they, they go inside. John comes right back out with me and we're taking stuff apart. And they leave. And another thing that caught my eye is she didn't have a backpack this time. So this guy who... You didn't know, and daughter has a backpack. Come up and say, "Hey, just need to use the restroom." You guys are just being good hosts, and and let them in. What? Daughter comes back out, no backpack on her, no backpack on the way back out. Yeah, and as, as soon as you hear their car take off up the block, and I looked up and I just see a Bear County Sheriff sticker on the side of a, a van, and everybody starts jumping out, and I told John, "Hey, man, uh, we're in, we're in a raid, dude." So, Dana, let me throw it to you for some background here. Can you kind of run through the facts of the case? Like, what's going on at this point? I mean, you know, <laughs> Lister, like, why are the cops even here? So, Bear County Narcotics Division, it goes and gets a search warrant for the house where Louie happened to be. Louie did not live there at all. They relied on a confidential informant to get into this particular house with really nothing corroborating the confidential informant's information at all this confidential informant had never been relied on before. 
how they made this person credible in the affidavit was that they had conducted a controlled buy for the officer. The officer says he met with the informant, gave the informant an undisclosed amount of U.S. currency, dropped the informant off down the road, and observed the informant go into a location. Then they later picked up the informant, and he had drugs. Wow. No, I'm just saying that the informant had never been used as a CI or anything before. First time. And they're just going off somebody's word who essentially you drop them off somewhere. You saw them go in a place and later on they had drugs and you equate that to them being credible. That's crazy. I mean, that doesn't even prove that the person knows what drugs are. They just went in there and said, here's money. Give me, give me meth. And then they're like, they came back with meth. They must know what it is, but that's essentially what it was. That's the credibility there. That information got police lawfully into a house. I mean, lawfully in the sense of that's the paperwork. The judge signed off on this, got them into a house took people down, searched their house, made arrests based on that. And, you know, this is the kind of problem that we see with a lot of these warrants. And and Clayton, I'm sure you're thinking what I'm thinking. Uh, We did an episode of the War on Drugs podcast called The War at Your Door on no-knock warrants. And this is not a no-knock warrant, but it has a lot of those similarities to it. It kind of has that same feel, right? Yeah, no, it definitely has that no-knock feel. It reminds me of what uh, Radley Balco talked about on our episode that we had of our episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it feels exactly like that. And and really, you know, judges are supposed to be this check on a lot of these warrants. And they just, they kind of rubber stamp them quite a bit. And you really look at a lot of the evidence that comes to allow the government just to barrel into your door, not announcing themselves and how shoddy and minor that is. And then you look at a case like this and you're using an untested, untrained confidential informant that has all the incentive of the world to essentially do things to get themselves off and you're rubber stamping these things and the consequences of that. I think it's just, it's a pretty scary, scary circumstance. It's one that, you know, we could all find ourselves yeah, in. You know, absolutely. Louis was just doing a good deed for a neighbor and look at the circumstances that he found himself. Yeah. Justice being served out in the name of a lie is, is yeah. scary anyway. Exactly. All right. So, Louis, let's wind it back a minute. You and John are building a ramp. The guy and his daughter come in, use the bathroom and take off. And police show up in a hot second with this warrant. What happened next? They started cuffing us up, and they secured the location. And uh, I had been uh, cuffing from the back like everybody else does, and I was already on the floor. Well, I look up, and I just an officer comes, and he jumps on top of me. And uh, he messes up my right shoulder. And, you know, I can't lift it up over my shoulders right now. And I was like, man, what you do that for, man? So – Almost immediately, they go back to the bathroom and they come back and they're like, what's this with a huge, large quantity of drugs? And that's exactly where this guy and his little girl with the backpack had just gone. And they supposedly found it between like there was like a loose board in the wall and like in a hole. And that's where they found it. Wow. So was this we don't know about these people. Are they because we, I'm, I'm going to say what it looks like and what it sounds like is this dude came in with his daughter and planted drugs in there. So I'm just sitting there and everything. And then they, they pointed me out and said, hey, is that your drugs on the floor? And I was, I don't have, you know, guys been looking at me the whole time. My hands have been handcuffed. And so they, uh, they jump on me again. And uh, there were some, uh, some narcotics that were found on the floor. And they were saying it's fine. I was like, I said, no, it's not, man. It's not mine. What he's talking about is when they handcuffed him, they took, they led them and it's on body cam into it inside to sit on the couch. And you can kind of see the general area. There's an officer sitting with them the entire time. You don't see anything on the ground. He's handcuffed the entire time. And when they stand him up to leave, 
there's all of a sudden like a little bit of drug sitting on the floor next to him that was not there before. I don't know how he could be sitting on a couch with his hands behind him and next to, next a, police to a police officer. officer and somehow get, I mean, the implication to me when I was reading the reports was he somehow pulled these out of his pockets or something, but they were accusing him of having this small quantity sitting next to him on the floor. Oh, wow. That wasn't there when he sat him down. Okay, and then right about then, that's when Rexina came back from the dollar store and saw everything that was going on. At her so home. she came back to the raid. She came back in the middle of the raid. So she came back, police there, you in cuffs. And she see like she starts cussing them out. What the hell are y'all doing in my house? Is that you know? She might be in a wheelchair, but she's gonna stand her ground. Sure. And she she, she tell him, get the hell out of my house. I don't know who y'all are. And she, we're Bear County Sheriff's and handed her the warrant. And she knows she's in cuffs. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
Uh, they were Bear County Narcotics Division were the officers. Interesting enough, just a side piece of information is this is not my first case overturning a Bear County Narcotics case. Like years ago, the same division, they had some lying officers who were in trouble in the same unit who were just kind of making up information and on search warrants and got in trouble. I was going to ask that. I was going to ask, like... They, they have a little bit of history of being dirty. At least with or, me, they do. I mean, I not every officer is bad. I can put that out there. But I haven't had a good, really positive experience in my in my career with that particular unit. Right. And there's been a history, yeah, like you said, within Bear County. I, I know back in, what, March 2010, there was, you know, I think 239 warnings to defense attorneys who whose cases evolved to narcotics deputies. And they're accused of pocketing you know, money that was supposed to be paid to CIs. And like you said, there's been other cases there. And so this is something, I don't know if the term systemic, but there has been a, a routine within Bear County of this types of stuff going on within their narcotics division, correct? Yeah. Okay. So each one of them was charged with four to 200 grams, I believe is what the ultimate charge ended up being with the intent to deliver, which in Texas, that elevates it up to another offense level range of punishment, everything. So um, I went to go see the lawyer and I told him, man, look, Roxina, she gave me an affidavit stating that it's her house. Everything is found on the property and she's solely responsible for it. He looked at that thing and he was like, you don't live there. They searched your stuff. There was nothing found on your person. He goes, I'm taking this all the way to trial. This is immediate dismissal. Oh, man, I just that was a quarter point telling me this man i'm high-fiving him i'm he goes man keep your nose clean stay out you goes you're gonna beat your case so i went hopping home skipping and happy i'm go back to working again and, and helping out and stuff like that and uh it wasn't this it wasn't the same when i went to court eventually your bond got revoked and you were back in jail waiting for these charges and somehow I don't know, like nobody can figure out, but he, his lawyers like switched and he didn't have the same lawyer anymore. And he got a new court appointed a lawyer. He's already telling me, man, it don't look good. Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. We go from this trial's about to get thrown, the case going to get thrown out to it doesn't look good. Yeah. In the- yeah you, they want 10 years. And I was like, what are, you, are you serious? 10 years from having all this confidence about me getting this case dismissed to this guy looking at me he's like, well, what can you say? You've been in trouble before, and I'm just yeah. But this isn't mine. Wow. In the eyes of the court, you're guilty, and you're gonna have to sign for something today. So they immediately wanted you to take a a, a plea. Yes, and I just put my head down and just. That's when I started like thinking, like maybe I need to do this. Maybe I need to do that. Maybe okay. And it wasn't until this case got opened up about me having these drugs that were found. Come to find out, all these uh, uh, police officers, none of them are credible in court. That's the reason why they didn't want me to take this to trial. Got you. Wow. Okay. Okay. So this goes, just going back to what you were saying, they were trying to get you to admit to those drugs in the house. When they put their knee on your chest and everything, they were trying to get admission then. And then when you got the first one, saw it for what it was, that it should be thrown out or whatever. Then they switched it to somebody that told you to take the plea. And it just sounds like what we've talked about, Greg, on our podcast with that whole system of trying to get people to get through the system as fast as possible, get them the plea. Like, it's almost shock and awe. Like, we're trying to scare you into this, like, you know. 
I think there's also something to be said there that when somebody is in custody already, like he, his bond got revoked, he's in custody, the balance of, well, okay, if I just take the plea and do a little bit of time, I can get out. It's a lot easier to fight charges when you're actually out of jail. You're working right. with your lawyer. Um, you can have better meetings with them. There's a lot more discussion that way. But when sometimes when you're in custody and you have a lawyer who's like, look, not fighting for you, but they're also not meeting with you because they're not, you're not able to call their office and talk with them. I think Louis and I have talked about this before, just the, okay, well, if they want me to do 10 and he ended up getting eight years ultimately, but you start running through, I could do, I've been in here a little bit of time already. I'm facing life in prison for this amount of drugs. The reality is you never know what a jury is going to do if you can't get your case dismissed and you start kind of justifying to yourself, okay, I could maybe make parole in a couple years and those thoughts start going through your mind. So Louie, now we're over a year and a half out from the actual arrest. You're initially thinking that this is going to get dismissed. Those hopes kind of just start to, to dwindle. And then you have to accept a plea deal on something that you know in your heart you had nothing well, to do. I was told 25 to life if I take this trial. And I'm like, you know, what do you say? It's hard. And uh, you're like, I, okay, I might beat this one, but this one's over here pending. And what are the chances? And you just put your head down and you just, you know, I, I have to take this. I have to take what they're offering me. 25 to life each case. And I was like, I know I have a history. It's, it's you know, I've learned from my mistakes. I haven't been making mistakes. And it's just like, I even told the cops, you're going to catch me, catch me. Don't, don't do it this way. Okay. So Louie pled out to serve eight years in prison and there's time served and, and all that. What about the other two defendants, Mona and John? So John ended up taking time in prison. I think he got 10 years on his case. And then they call her Mona. Her official name is Rexina. Rexina was very, very ill. So John actually took a little bit more time on his sentence so that Rexina could get probation. That's kind of also another reason that these plea bargains were all offered so that Rexina could get out because of her health problems. And, and Louis and John recognized that. So Rexina got out, she served her probation, and John and Louis went off to start their sentences. By the time you get there, you really kind of got your mindset on, you know, how you're just going to tread through. You don't want to get involved. You don't want to stay out of the way, go to the library, read books, do this. Do. And that's what you're mostly focused on. You can't sit there and tell yourself that, you know, that you, what you did was wrong. You sold yourself out, you know. You had nothing to do with this. You know, why Why did you do what you did? I'm just here to do my time. That's all in my mind for it. There's a lot of disorder and chaos that goes on in there. And you just don't want no part of it. You don't conversate with certain people. You just leave all this stuff alone. And uh, every now and then you're going to have a clash with these groups or with this or with that. And it's how you deal with it. You just got to keep moving forward. I had a real tough time in there because I had a celly and, uh, you know, we, he was uh, five years older than I was and we would talk. And next thing I know, the morning's there and we would just talk and talk and talk. Well, he, he had a, he was making some hooch when I was at the library and, uh, they fought for the bottle or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, my, my celly, and, uh, you know, he, he was, he, he, he died. He, he was beaten to death. And uh, it still bothers it still bothers me today. But hey, do you want me to tell this part, Louis? Please. 
Sorry. Okay, so they I've heard him tell this before and it's really heartbreaking, but they basically brought him like a bucket of water and told him to clean up the blood that was in his cell his, himself. And so Jeez. it's his friend's blood and he had to clean it all up. I told him I, I don't want to go in there. I, I don't want to go in there. And they said, uh, aren't you coming up for parole? You know, you, I'm giving you a direct order to get inside your cell and do this, do that. You know, you don't want to get in there? You know, okay. You're going to lose your parole next year, to, you know, for the following year. So I put my head down and I cleaned up the blood. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, so Dana, you get involved in this case in, in 2019. And, you know, there, there's a parallel case to this that is really tied into Louis. Can you kind of talk about what you discovered 
between Louis' case and obviously the other case of Ruby Sandoval, which happened in October of that same year in San Antonio, Texas. Yeah, so when I was asked by the Conviction Integrity Unit and then appointed by the judge to represent them, I did reach out to Louis and John. I, I just wanted to know what was going on, what their thoughts on their own case were, and saying, I'm looking into this, this is what I've been told so far, but I need to get some information. And both of their letters back finally were kind of the same thing. We've always said that this guy came into the house and he must have planted the drugs because they weren't ours and it was a really weird situation and nobody believed us, which it's, it matched up with, with Ruby's case as well. So what I find out later is somebody had messaged her or talked to her about storing like a box or a bag, leaving it at her house for a little while. She said, sure, that's fine. She had a lot of text messages with this person. The person was like, when are you going to be home? When are you going to be home? I, you know, that kind of stuff. And as soon as she gets home, cops raid her house with a search warrant and they have find drugs in this bag that this person asked to leave at her house. So based on that, she starts immediately fighting her case and it takes her quite a while to prove to the prosecutor and to everyone, you know, with her lawyer, get her text messages and everything in line to show this person must have left the drugs here. The state now feels comfortable enough that that's what happened in her case. Um, So that prosecutor in her case went to a conviction integrity unit that the DA's office has. They immediately pulled every case that this confidential informant had worked on previously. And it was Louis, Rexina, and John's case. They sent me a memorandum explaining everything that went on and why they think that, you know, what happened in in John and Louis' case and Rexina's case might have happened just like it happened in this other woman's case. Wow. So the same informant. Mm -hmm. So the same playbook of somebody comes by, leaves something there, and then the police come. The same county. Wow. Yeah. No, okay. it was it was the same informant, the same situation, same informant. Thankfully, in her case, she had a bunch of text messages from the individual and she was able to establish all of that. OK, gotcha. OK. Uh, what was the um, between Rexine and the confidential informant? Like, was there a connection? Why was he drawn to this house, to even plant things? Or was it completely random? I think that he knew John and Rexina just from the neighborhood is my understanding. They, they knew who he was, but that was kind of the extent of it. Louis didn't know who he was at all. No, I didn't know him. Wow. And that person used their daughter. Mm-hmm. So, it just shows so the lengths that confidential informants go to to work off their own cases. Gotcha. So was it readily apparent when you were kind of reading through this and and going through what were some of the things that you feel could have nipped us in the bud earlier? What was the kind of the things that stood out to you the most? Red flag number one to me was reading this search warrant that this is the first time they've ever used this confidential informant. I don't think that they had enough to get a search warrant based on that. I would have challenged that. The body cam footage that what I had said earlier that it, they're trying to say that the, these drugs that are near Louie, but they weren't there before. It just, and if you see the video, it blacks out. They're, they're like, it does turn the camera on and, and state your name and what's your address. And then it turned it back off. Then it turned it back on and said, these drugs were found right here. Officers that turn on and off their cameras or mute their mics, always a red flag for me. It just all seemed weird. And when something seems weird or off, there's usually some problems there, is, in, in my opinion. So there's definitely was a lot to work with. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you talked about, Dana, a lot of the, the work that the, the Bear County Conviction Integrity Unit has done. 
and, and the good work that they've done. And they've actually been, you know, a really big bright spot within the prosecutorial's office there. Can you talk about, you know, what their involvement throughout this process with Louie once you got into the case and, and how that looked? So initially it was the chief of that office. She's uh, not there anymore. She works for a different court. Um, but Matt Howard is now the chief of the Conviction Integrity Unit. I work with Matt quite a bit. I can't, I can't ever say that he and I is always are going to agree on every case, but I can assure you that he gives everything a thorough review. And if it's a wrongful conviction, he will stand up and say it's a wrongful conviction. He's not afraid to do it. So I really do commend the work. Um, Our DA is Joe Gonzalez. He didn't start the Conviction Integrity Unit, but he's kept it going and really built on it. And they do a great job of overturning wrongful convictions when, when the proof is there. So in my work, when I filed the claims, I, I got every claim together that I could possibly file for Louie and John and Rexina. And then I filed them in, a, in the writ application and memorandum of law. From there, I worked with the, the Conviction Integrity Unit on what facts and details we're going to agree to. And we put those agreed orders together and we get those in front of the judge. And we also had a great judge, Judge Meza, here in town. She agreed on a lot of this. She actually went even further than what the Court of Criminal Appeals was willing to do. Judge Meza recommended that all three of them are actually innocent of the charges. Um, so that's kind of the process when, especially when we have agreed facts and agreed relief, the DA's office here is is willing to get on board and we file a lot of agreed stuff together, which is unique. As a defense attorney, it does feel weird to, to give so much credit, but I, every DA's office, because of situations like this, need conviction integrity units and true ones that are willing to say our DA's messed up, our, our sheriff's messed up. So they are, they're willing to make those hard calls in the Convection Integrity Unit here. And I, I appreciate the work that they do, especially on this case. Oh, man, the Conviction Integrity Unit. I think that that needs to be implemented everywhere, man. Like, that's, that's something that it's, it's a resource, I think, that can hopefully get a lot more cases overturned, you know? Yeah, Clayton, I totally agree. And, you know, we're, we're seeing them pop up a lot more and more. And yeah, to your point, we definitely need more oversight on these things. All right. So Dana, as you said, Judge Mesa recommended that Louie and John's convictions be overturned and they should be found innocent. But then it went up to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Can you explain what happened next? Yeah. The Court of Criminal Appeals for John and Louie said no, that they should, th- th- their case is overturned, but they're not actually innocent, which it's, it's a really high, difficult burden to prove when actual innocence. So I, I can go into why they didn't there because the, in John's house, there was some little minor amounts of drugs that were found like personal use, small amounts like that. And because they said that that's a lesser included of the greater amount, they're not going to give them an actual innocence finding. That's why they went that route. But Louis didn't live there and there was nothing directly linked to Louis. I really felt like at least in Louis's case, he should have had the actual innocence finding in this case. So since they don't get an actual innocence, it gets sent back down to the trial court level and the DA's office immediately filed dismissals in all the cases just to make it official that it's overturned and now dismissed officially. Um, So they don't have a conviction on their record for these cases. And, And because they are not found actually innocent, Texas law does not allow them to be entitled to compensation because of that, correct? Correct. Have anyone, any officers or anyone else been disciplined that were connected to this case? Not that I'm aware of. Was the informant ever charged with anything about lying in this case? No, not that I'm aware of. Okay. And so we're now looking into what August 2020, 
Judge Meza finally finds for wrongful conviction. And then Louis, you're you're released at the same time as as John on bond in September 2020. Yes, you had like kind of a turn because you it sounded like you kind of gave up and just like said, I'm gonna put my head down and do my time and to be walking free, man. What was that like? It was the uh meeting my little grandbaby. Playing with her is just wow. I just started smiling, like I'll be there for my parents, you know, you know I'm the I'm the only son. I'm big little brother, and so it's kind of, you know, I'm going to go do what I'm supposed to be doing. One other little kind of piece of sad part of this whole case is um, the whole time that I represented Rexina, she was on hospice care because of her illness. And the day that the judge signed these orders for them, like for her case to be overturned, it didn't need to go up to the Court of Criminal Appeals. But the day she signed it, I called the next day after I got the order and she had passed away the night before. So I never got a chance to tell Rexina her case was overturned. Oh, man. Yeah. The first thing that John and Louie did was they were pallbearers at Rexina's funeral. Damn, yeah. Geez. Her sister had told us that she knew that, you know, that y'all guys were going to get out. She was happy we got out. I think uh, about a year into my sentence, she wrote me a letter. Mm-hmm. I know with her arthritis, that, that probably took a lot out of her. So even when I was incarcerated, we still kept in touch. Mm-hmm. With what little she could say, because it was like, hi, thinking about you, how have you been? And pretty much that's it. You know, I still keep in touch with John. I still keep in touch with Delma, Roxina's sister. Yeah. We're still, like, I guess, easing our way through this and just slowly turning pages and moving forward. Wow. Just an unbelievable story. Um, I think this this case really does exemplify so much that's wrong with our criminal justice system and, and the war on drugs and how these negative incentives can really, um, you know, impact people's lives in such a dramatic fashion that, you know, you see where these negative sentences could lie with the confidential informant and where his incentives are, are drawn from the detectives to garner two more convictions kind of fairly easily uh, without kind of, you know, really um, respecting someone's constitutional rights. It's such an exemplification of, of all the negative that we see within the criminal justice system. And the fact that we have, you know, somewhat of a happy ending with Louie and how many other thousands of people have probably gone through similar things and, and never got this opportunity um, to actually be, you know, have their cases dismissed because there wasn't this conviction integrity or, or there wasn't this piece of evidence. And so, yeah, I just want to thank you, Louie, for, for coming on uh, today and discuss this case. Well, that's, that's one thing with our podcast. We don't have a lot of happy endings. Yeah. So to have somebody who's actually been through everything and come out the other side and it's great. So thank you. Thank you both. Louis, is there any call to action? Is there a, a GoFundMe page? Is there a, a number for people can reach out about, you know, you and your 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 skills as as an electrician? Anything else with that that we can we can plug for you? If anybody needs some help or needs some work or stuff like that, you can go through Dana. It's all right with her. I'll be your secretary, Louie. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> you, you need you need plumbing, you need electrical, you need to fix your fence, and I ain't going to wash your dogs, but, you know, all that other stuff right there. <laughs> Any, anything to keep myself busy, to keep myself moving, keep some gas in the, in the truck, and a little change in my pocket, I'm fine.
I'm, I'm looking at some curtains right now that are crooked because I couldn't do that. And you lifted a whole fucking house by yourself. God damn. It's <laughs> just it's so worthless. Man, come on. You got to get your skills up. Uh, no, I, t- I take that back. We got to get our skills up. That's yeah. a we thing. We got to get our skills up. Yeah, man. Look, we've come to this segment of our show called Closing Arguments. Louie and Dana, thank you so much for being here with us today. This is the last segment of the show. So we turn it over to you two for any final thoughts that you may have for your closing arguments. So Dana, why don't you start us off? I always say that I would love to not do this job anymore only because I would love that there's never another wrongful conviction ever. But there's always going to be this job because humans are involved in this process, in this system. The use of confidential informants really needs to be questioned in every single case if they're going to do it. I don't personally think they should be doing it, but that's, I'm not a law enforcement officer. Judges who review search warrant affidavits and arrest warrant affidavits. I mean, the whole process, everybody needs to have better training to, so that we can catch these things on the front end and prevent them from ever even happening. I just think, I, I, I hope, and I love podcasts like this where we're getting the word out that wrongful convictions do happen. They absolutely do happen. And we can't just, you know, incarcerate somebody and, and turn a blind eye anymore that we need to start working. So if there's any local organizations, innocence projects in your in your state or local community, get involved if you can, donate. If you ever get called on jury duty, really take it serious because you could be deciding somebody's fate. Keep your head up and keep going. You, you get enough wrong to you're out there doing right. So, you know, I've had enough wrong done to me. So now it's just, you know, I go out there and help out all I can. And uh, I don't hold any negativity, any grudge or nothing like that. You know, I still have a lot of respect for the law. I still respect, you know, these people that are doing a hell of a job out there. And it wasn't until I was released and I saw all the effort that Dana and and the judge put into getting me out. It's like these people already, they didn't know me for any date. They didn't owe me anything, but they fought hard to get me out. They fought hard to, to where I'm at. And so that's, you know, I guess check marks on my side. You know, you do have people looking out after you. Not everybody's there to hang you. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. We are your guest hosts, Clayton English. And I'm Greg Glott. And we'd like to give a shout out to executive producers, Jason Flom and Kevin Wardis. Plus everybody on the Wrongful Conviction production team, Connor Hall, Annie Chelsea, Lila Robinson, and Jeff Kleiber. The music in the production comes from three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Shay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can find us online, too. I'm Clayton English on Instagram. And I'm on Twitter at Greg Lott. And for more about the state of drug criminalization in your society, listen to the War on Drugs podcast wherever you get your podcast. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. 
Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s She looked like a million bucks Scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes Nearly 10 million dollars was all gone It's just unbelievable Hide your money in your old rich men Because <laughs> she is on the prowl Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer On the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts